Revelation. Huh? That'll get you up in the morning. The book of Revelation promises to be a wild time when a sermon is coming out of Revelation. Well, this shouldn't be too wild. Um, I'm not. This is not the dragon part. Uh, I know it's not nearly as cool, but but it's an important part. It plays a big part in in the sort of the ongoing theme here for a few weeks. I want us to look at Revelation chapter five, a scene set in the not too distant or distant or I don't know. I'll I'll, leave, I'll just say in the future, so that we don't have to we don't have to specify no dates for you. But at some point in the future, we get a vision. John got a vision. He passed the vision on this inspired word about a vision that comes. And this is just one small part of it in Revelation chapter five. But here's what it says. Looking at a great throng of people of all different kinds, it says. Revelation 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. And this is the word of God. One small, one small piece of it, part of a bigger vision. And it fits. Here's how. Here's how it follows last week. Here's the recap for you. Now, last week we looked at what Paul said to all the sophisticates in Athens. All in the Areopagus, gathered up in that high place where all the all the so-called thinkers and philosophizers like to just kind of sit around and talk about ideas. And he wandered right on in there. He was invited to. And remember what he said. Here's a piece of what he said we looked at last week when he said to them, yeah, he, gave, he gave them a, a, a big spiel kind of leading into his gospel presentation. He says, and he, he's talking about God because they, they, they believed in God. They still weren't sure who is he, what's he like. And Paul says, he made from one blood every nation of mankind to live on all the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from any one of us. Remember that. He's telling them then about this, and I said last week that this points to something pretty profound and important in our time right now, that we've got to remember always and that we've got to be prepared to articulate, to proclaim to the world. So I just wonder if you might have noticed... You know, in your busy daily lives, if you might have noticed, just looking around, that the that that among among things that all around us is sort of prominent and 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 is an issue, because issues change, right, over time. You can go to any generation. What are the what's the issue? What are the issues? And they might list different things. But you may have noticed that one of the issues now is this: the idea of people and specifically of race. If you were to do a count, and I haven't done it, I'm not sure how you'd do it, but if you were to do a count of major articles, essays, opinion columns, news stories, or new books, <coughs> nonfiction books, I don't know, the last five, six years even, for that matter, it's the last year, I just wonder what the count would look like using using a search based on prominent words. That is, a word featuring in the title of that essay, article, opinion, piece, news story. And and I would wonder if the word race or racism 
would be prominent. I'm like, would it be number one? I don't know. I don't know. I wouldn't surprise me. It's an issue. So one of the worst things today that you could be called, and one of the most actually commonly leveled accusations today, would be racist. And it could be surprisingly easy to earn the title. Uh, because of because it's an issue that makes that makes the accusation that much weightier, right? If it weren't an issue, maybe the accusation wouldn't carry such devastation. But it does. It's a career ender. It has been for people. Just the mere accusation has been. A lot of the books and essays will say that this problem is to be blamed for uh, for most everything you see wrong. All society's problems, more or less. And it's been identified as almost being just about everywhere, like a full-body, full-on cancer uh, that maybe just can't be cured. And it's become sort of a rallying cry uh, that motivates lots of people, scores of people, to do lots of things, to hit the streets um, and to protest in all kinds of ways. Uh, protest every, every sphere of life, because every sphere is guilty. The cancer is everywhere. And it's motivated important people and wealthy people and business owners and corporations uh, to adjust in lots of ways. And some it's motive some people on the sort of the fringe of things, it's it's made them want to basically just uh, burn everything down. So in fact, recently, you know, you know, they're you know, it's a big election season, so they, they've only had two of these debates. Uh, there were gonna be three, there ended up being two, and, and in the two, you know, you so it's precious time spent. You only get a, you only get a certain amount of time with two, two leading people on one stage. The people get to choose what are the topics. So imagine how important it is. What are the topics? What will be the topics in these precious few minutes, in these only two debates? And in both of them, one of the topics was race in America. So yeah, obviously this is a big topic. So what's the church say about it? Big C. What's the church say about it? What should the church think about it? Should the church ignore it? Go about our way? Ignore it. Should the church just rubber stamp whatever the leading popular books are? Just baptize those? How does the church go about addressing or tackling a thing that everyone seems to deem this important? And the answer is really that we address it the same as we address all things. The same way we... The same way that we deal with all truth that we believe, that we teach, the things by which we live, in every case, we appeal to Revelation. Now, as I said this morning, we read from Revelation. Now, when I say we appeal to Revelation, I don't just mean the book called Revelation. I mean we appeal to everything that's been revealed. And that includes some general things, because, because even, even the very principles of reason are revealed. But in a special sense, we have a word more divinely revealed. And we even have, yeah, this book we read from, which has come to be called in English Revelation, Apocalypsis in Greek. And in this passage we read, we saw a reference to people of all sorts and of all kinds, and it used these different words to describe all those different kinds of people. But you might notice that in no English translation would you find any of those words rendered race. 
And you might wonder, why would that be? And it leads us to ask an important question that doesn't often get asked, but we, we should ask it. And that is, given the fact that we don't see that used as one of those words, is race a meaningful or useful category even to begin with? And it might surprise you that, uh, that I want to say that the answer to that is, in a word, no. The Bible does not use race as a category of human classification. It uses several other words. It doesn't use that word. So what, what does the world mean now today? What, what, just to be clear about it, what are we talking about? What is, what is everyone talking about who uses the word? Well, race is understood generally as a biological kind of distinction below the level of species that is sort of typified and characterized by physical differences in people. So in other words, yeah, everybody's human, everybody's homo sapiens, but the concept of race is that it's a sort of categorization that's biological in nature, just below that level, and, and that it's seen and that it's observed in, you know, size and build and body type and hair type and facial characteristics and of course skin tones. That's what it is. That's what is meant by it. But Scripture doesn't recognize this kind of division. Instead, we have these different words that are commonly used that we see in Revelation 5. It's, by the way, same four words used in two chapters later to describe the throng. What are these words? Let's have a quick look. And if you are, um, if you are quarantining, if you're listening in the parking lot, to it's being broadcasted, or if you're listening to it later, Sorry, you got. I'll do my best. But it's on the screen for those of you in here. These four words, what they are, what they come from, the Greek words, as best we can understand what they mean. Every tribe and tongue, every people and nation. Four words. Let's take them one at a time. Tribe. Tribe is the Greek word phule. P-H-U-L-E is how it's transliterated using our letters. Phule. We get our word phylum from this when we do the big taxonomies. That doesn't mean that it means that. It means that was word, the word was borrowed from Greek to create the word phylum. When it's used, it just means a tribe or a clan. Whenever it talks about the 12 tribes, when Paul says, I am from the tribe of Benjamin, this is the word that he uses. Well, what about the next word? Tongue. This is the Greek word glossa. Glossa, like G-L-O-S-S-A is how it would look. Glossa. And so the, when we, there's, a, there's a fancy um, word for speaking in tongues. You may have heard it. Glossolalia. Anybody ever heard that one? It's, it's sort of a fancy word for speaking in tongues, the practice. Glossolalia, which literally just means tongue speaking. And tongue, of course... Not in this case referring to the actual physical thing in your mouth that you taste your food with, that you use to make all the sounds to make the words, that you sometimes bite. No, because in, in lots of languages, including our own by the way, in lots of languages, the word tongue means the literal thing in your mouth and is sort of like metaphorical for a language you speak means both of those. 
And in this case, speaking in tongues doesn't mean you're using your tongue to say things. It means you're speaking languages. And of course, now, strictly speaking, we're all speaking languages because if you're speaking, you're speaking a language. Otherwise, you're just making noises. So in a sense, right now, I'm speaking in a tongue to you right now. But of course, biblically, when it uses the term and it describes people as speaking in tongues, what it means is that they are speaking in languages they shouldn't be able to because they don't know them. They never learned them, not their languages. Which makes it bizarre and makes it miraculous. But it is a division of people. It is a distinct division of people. People speak in different languages. And so it makes sense, doesn't it? Well, the next word is the most general and the broadest of them all. It is the word Laos. Laos. Spelled like you, you know, the country of Laos. Only don't, don't let that throw you up because they didn't name the country after that. It's just sort of coincidence. It's named after, name given to the people, the Laotian people. You see this Greek word show up in the word lay people. Which, I guess when you think about it, is redundant. Lay people just means people, people. Because laos is just a people. Now it can be plural, but it can also be it can also be a singular, like a people group. And sometimes we use the word people group, put it together. So it's very general. It's a group of people used lots of times in the New Testament. This group, that group of people, God's people. The people came and said, whatever you know. It's very broad. And then of course the word nation, which is probably the most commonly used one, and I've referred to it a lot of times before. Ethnos. Clearly, you can sort of tell. We get the word ethnic from that word, ethnic, ethnicity. And it's usually translated nation. It sort of refers to a culture, but it's also the word, when it's plural, used for Gentiles, which it just means, which just basically means the nations or the peoples and all the other people. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Ethnoi. Well, there are your words right there. There they are. And when the Bible describes all the various and varied peoples of the earth, it just uses those words, kind of poetically. And it distinguishes them in these ways, none of which really corresponds to what we call race. But, now, that's just the Bible. We might say, well, okay, so that's the Bible. But, you know, maybe those writers were just too ancient. And maybe they just weren't aware enough. And to that extent, the Bible may be, you know, scientifically out of date in failing to recognize race the way that we do. Is that the case? Is race actually, you know, turns out to be very legitimate, clear, and meaningful category? Again, you may be surprised to hear just how little justification there is for the biological reality of race today. Here's what an anthropologist named Robert Sussman writes in his book called The Myth of Race. And I'm quoting him. Quote, in 1950, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, also known as UNESCO, issued a statement asserting that all humans belong to the same species and that race is not a biological reality but a myth. 
This was a summary of the findings of an international panel of anthropologists, geneticists, sociologists, and psychologists. He goes on, since that time, similar statements have been published by the American Anthropological Association and the American Association of Physical Anthropologists and other groups, and an enormous amount of modern scientific data has been gathered to justify that conclusion. Today, the vast majority, he says, of those involved in research into human variation agree that biological races do not exist among humans. Among those who study the subject, we or who use and accept modern scientific techniques, this scientific fact is as valid and true as the fact that the Earth is round and revolves around the sun. And yes, I am aware of the movement of flat earthers. So maybe, I guess, you know, even that is up for grabs a little But Do you find that surprising? I suspect a lot of people would find that very surprising. And so PBS had this special... Uh, that I put their advertisement up here called Race, the Power of an Illusion. That was what they called it. I didn't watch it, but I read the notes on it to see where they got all their ideas. And one of them was this expert that they like to quote, Professor of Biological Anthropology is his title, Alan Goodman. Listen to some of what he says in, his, in the notes. Quotes from him. Quote, he says, Scientists have actually been saying for quite a while that race, as biology, doesn't exist. That there's no biological basis for race. That's quite a shocking, uh, that is quite shocking, he writes, to a lot of people. When you look and you think you see race, to be told that no, you don't, you just think you see race, you know, based on your cultural lens, why, that's extremely challenging, he says. But what is important is that Race is a very salient social and historical concept, a social and historical idea. It has shaped institutions. It has shaped our legal system. And I think that by stripping the biology from it, by stripping the idea that race is somehow based in biology, we show the emperor to have no clothes. We show race for what it is. It's an idea that is constantly being reinvented. He says race is a cultural construction. We really are fundamentally alike in every way. Race is our politics. It is our political economy. It is an old ideology that tends to separate us out unnecessarily. Racism, he says, rests in large part on this idea that race is biology. Hmm. Well, what can this recognition mean? I mean, you got to take a second just to take it in. That's surprising. What Part of what makes it so surprising is what it means, which is that it means that at the present time, our society is completely fixated and centered on a concept that is not necessarily seen as even objectively real. That's kind of stunning. Now, one of the things we'll look at next week, this ongoing subject, is that the most important factors, according to Scripture, the most important factors that distinguish tribes, nations, and peoples from each other are their beliefs their theology, their character, and how they live morally. In other words, it's, it's who or what they worship and how they actually live that matters, biblically speaking. That's way more important. That's what sets nations apart from nations. We'll look at all the passages that seem to say so. That's how the Bible sees people far more, far more than 
This, the shallower traits by which we have drawn the hardest lines. But what we call race certainly just appears to be a very dubious distinction and of, and of little consequence to God according to what's revealed. And part of why I think we have fixated on it so much is that man looks on the outward appearance and God looks at the heart. Let me just look at a, let, me, let me ask a few questions here. Let's look back again at our passage and just think about the context of, of uh, Revelation 5 then, thinking about John and what John says. It's not the, he's not the only one, of course, but it is a prominent passage using all four of the words. Let's ask a couple of questions that I think are worth asking that people, people would likely ask. One of the questions you might ask is, and I don't have these questions on the screen, but one of the questions would be, are we then denying the obvious physical differences between peoples, between groups of people? Are we denying the obvious differences? Of course we're not. That would be, well, that would just be ludicrous. <laughs> no, we're not, we're not out of our minds here to say this. Nobody is denying that. What we're saying is that those do not comprise biological categories. Eye color is not a biological category. We don't separate out people in meaningful ways below the level of species as the green eyes and the brown eyes. So, in other words, there, there. In other words, to say it, wait a second. There are not a, there are not a given number of quote races. Here are the races. Here they are. Here's the, here's the definitive list. That word itself, if you think about it, is so broad as to barely have distinctive meaning. Consider for a minute the number of the varied number of people that could be called Asian. Do you realize how enormous that umbrella is? And how and, and the several billion people under it? Maybe not several billion, but a few billion. And how wildly different the cultures, languages, so many languages. I don't well, I wouldn't be able to name them all for on a bet. And yet. So, so how meaningful is that as a racial category? You check a box, Asian. I mean, it's like, there's a few billion people who could say that. So how broad, how meaningful can it be to encompass so many? Not to mention something like white. What in the world could that really mean that has, re, that has meaning? I mean, we, under, we understand what they mean by it. But these differences are, we could put it this way, only skin deep. Very shallow. Not a lot. Nothing to base much of your points of view on. Nothing to build serious considerations of human beings upon. There are not, just to say it a different way, put it, put it this way. There are not five skin colors or skin tones. Here they are. You're one of these five. It's a spectrum. And I couldn't even begin to suggest how many possibilities there are on the spectrum. I wouldn't know. I mean, there could be hundreds. It's, it's, it's too simplistic. It's like if you thought, what if you thought, you know what? I want to paint a room. So I'm going to go down to the paint store. It ought to be easy because after all, there's like what? Six colors? That's no problem. Take me like three minutes to examine all six colors and pick one. But that's not how paint colors work, is it? 
How long would it take you to look through every single one of them? I mean, you're going to be you, you're you're going to have a headache just going through the whites. You see, that's sort of analogous to the simplicity of of just seeing race in these superficial ways. There's this one, this one, and this one, and this one. That's it. No, there's there are thousands of intermediary. You know, along that spectrum is everything you can imagine. So. The point is, we're not denying that there are differences. We're denying what they mean and how significant they are. And that there's much value in using that as your lens through which you view human people. The Bible doesn't use that lens. Even the scientists don't use that lens. Why would we, why would a culture, how wise would a culture be to make that the prominent lens? Well, here's another question that we probably ought to ask, speaking biblically here. Weren't the Jews, after all, a race? Aren't the Jews a race? Weren't they set apart as a race? Well, the answer is no, not in the way that we use that word. We know the Old Testament story. We know the Jews descended from a family. So they shared some kind of genealogy having descended from a family. And so they kept their lineage. They traced their genealogy so as to know which tribe they even came from. The way you might do a, you know, you can go, you can go to ancestry and try to track down all that stuff about your your own lineage and who came over here from whatever country or whatever time and blah 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 and all that. The Jews knew that stuff. They tried to they tried to keep up with where they're from, coming from a family. But does that mean that they were a quote race the way we understand it now? Go back to the just go back to the first question we looked at. Think about how, think about the loose overgeneralized idea in the way that the Bible lumps all the other people as the Gentiles. Does that sound to you like a serious attempt at some kind of racial taxonomy when the Bible says, "Here are the Jews and here's this other category." And who's in that category? Everybody. Everybody except this I mean what percentage of the human population would the, would the Jews make up? I mean, I don't know. Would it, let's just say it's two. I don't know that it is. Let's just, for the sake of it, it's not. That's not far off. That might be over overstating it. So you're going to have a, an important racial category that is 98 percent of the people all around the world. They're not trying to be. That's not the point of Jew and Gentile. The point of using Jew and Gentile was not to make a serious biological distinction between races. It was. To, if you read the context of every time it says it, it's to talk about the significance of the Jews, that they are supposed to be set apart from the common understandings of man, as represented in a thousand different worldviews and all the various religions and customs. They had a word. They had the law. They had the prophets. They had the writings. They had the priesthood. And they were supposed to remember that and not just float off into the, the gods and the worship and the, and the cultures and customs of all the various peoples they might be among. So, no, the Jews, it was their God, it was their truth, it was their worship, it was their practice that mattered, not some racial type. We'll see that again next week. Some Jews mistakenly came to think that was the case. I'm special, I'm superior, I'm Jewish. And they are, they are promptly rebuked in the New Testament for that mindset. We'll see that. Well, the last question I have that I think is worth asking is, 
doesn't the Bible speak to the sin of what we now would call, what people today call, racism? Well, clearly, the Bible addresses all sinful mistreatment of people for any reason. There is not a singular emphasis now on this or that physical characteristic as unique among the mistreatment. Like, it's wrong to mistreat a person for being for, for not being able to walk. But it's even worse if they're blind. It doesn't have a hierarchy in that sense. Sometimes there are, there are, there are things specified. Often it has to do with wealth or lack thereof. The Bible condemns throughout the law, throughout the Torah, and even in the words of the prophets, the Bible condemns showing partiality or favoritism to a person for any reason. And particularly, of course, silly reasons. Like, you don't have as much money as that person. And of course, you could take all the various characteristics that fall that, that are that are that are referred to as racial characteristics, and they would all fit into the category. They would all fit into the the uh, you just you know make a make a make a category entitled stuff it is wrong to consider in your, how you treat human beings. Stuff that is wrong to consider. Stuff that should not be making a difference in how you regard people. Clearly all that stuff would fit in there. Jesus challenged the Jews' narrow idea of their own superiority. As I said a minute ago, you know Jesus began his public ministry, you might remember, by standing up, this fairly young guy, in the temple, reads Isaiah, right? Tells them it's been fulfilled. And, and we always know that they got mad about that. But you know what we don't often notice is that it wasn't necessarily... Just that that made them mad. He went on to say a couple more things that seemed to really get him mad. And what were those things? He went on to say, he went on to make reference to the Gentiles as being blessed by God, where God, where the Jews turn away from God and don't don't follow, don't believe, don't obey God, and he sent and he disregards them and, and showers his favor on non-Jews, and that made the people in the temple mad. People in that uh, uh, in that synagogue. They're all those Jews. That made them mad. In other words, he challenged their sense of racial superiority just as Jews as such. And the mob wanted to attack him for that. See also here the Good Samaritan. They didn't care for that story too much either. Because that no good half-breed, speaking of racism, that no good half-breed, half-Jew, uh, how dare you make him the hero of this storyline? Those half-breeds are the villains. Everybody knows it. So yes, he addressed Jews who were being what we would, who were being racist by the term we would use today, even though that doesn't come through in translation. That word isn't used. What is used is simply a sinful partiality shown, a sin, a lack of loving those people, a wrong regard for those people, a misunderstanding. A foolish, arrogant idea that you're good because, what, some kind of genes you got inside you? No. So, Christians do not pretend. We, we don't have a rosy view of people. We're not the, uh, we're, we're not what some people might today say, racism deniers. You think nobody's racist? Uh, Christians should be the last people on that bandwagon. We don't pretend people are better than they are. 
Our theology, uh, our theology is never going to allow us to have an overly optimistic understanding of the moral qualities of human beings. That we're, we're never going to be caught saying, oh, people are so good. Why they would never look down on or be unfair toward or mistreat others. others. They wouldn't do that. We're just too good by nature. You don't, you don't know any biblical, biblically minded people. If, uh, if, if, any Christ, if any people who profess to be Christians are saying that kind of thing, um, I'm not sure what religion they are, but I don't recognize that as, as a Christian theology. We are the first to recognize the potential and reality for sin of every kind. We've always known it. It doesn't surprise us to see it. If I see a bunch of people gathering together, and they could be the most vile in any in any country, by the way, because people treat people mistreat people on these bases everywhere you go. There are caste systems all over, tribe versus tribe. Those people are terrible. We hate those people. Those people are the devil. We kill those people. You find this among mankind everywhere you go, and it doesn't shock me. It doesn't shock me because I expect it, because I know what man is, because I have been I have been taught and trained in the ways of truth. I understand what human beings are. I'm not surprised by that. I can account for that. We are the people who can account for that. So no, we don't deny those sins. That would be unbiblical. But nor, this is important, nor do we just adopt uncritically whatever unbiblical understandings of these things are, are floating around our society. We don't just rubber stamp, as I said, whatever the leading book is, that's supposed to address this issue that comes from some completely whack point of view. We spent some Wednesdays talking through some of these ideas, and I read to you passages from books today that try to address this, that think that they're addressing this well, and that are being used to teach seminars and everything. And a lot of the background assumptions in those books are just, let me use a technical term for you, crazy. They just couldn't be more wrong. Just lack understanding. We have to speak to them Biblically, it's an alternative view that just happens to be the correct view. So the mischaracterizations of these problems today, to just get it wrong like that, uh, by popular writers and movements, that cannot offer hope. It would be cruel to foster that and further that if it can't fix, if there's no solutions there. It'd be wrong to push it because a lot of those writers, they don't comprehend the issues properly. Foolishness and error can't heal society's sins. So we don't need to be out writing prescriptions for placebos or poison pills. Others will do that. We have to stand apart. We've got to be countercultural to say, the diagnosis over there is wrong. And therefore the cure is going to be wrong. It may even make things worse. Here is, here is an accurate diagnosis and the only real cure. We have a word, do we not? We have a word from God. And it includes, among other things, this truth revealed at the end. It, it, the truth begins with the beginning, the first people. It's true then too. And it's true throughout all of history. And it's true from what we read in this vision. It's true at the end of history, here in Revelation 5. That by His blood, Christ has ransomed a people one people, but that people is from, you could even see, you could say it plural, rep, he's ransomed a bunch of people, 
And he has made them a kingdom, right? He has unified them. And who are they? What kind of people? Every kind. From every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation.